Chapter Twelve of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Twelve: The Invisible Hand. Jane received a letter from Bishop Dyer, not in his own handwriting, which stated that the abrupt termination of their interview had left him in some doubt as to her future conduct. A slight injury had incapacitated him from seeking another meeting at present, the letter went on to say, and ended with a request, which was virtually a command, that she call upon him at once. The reading of the letter acquainted Jane Witherstein with the fact that something within her had all but changed— she sent no reply to Bishop Dyer, nor did she go to see him. On Sunday she remained absent from the service, for the second time in years, and though she did not actually suffer, there was a deadlock of feelings deep within her, and the waiting for a balance to fall on either side was almost as bad as suffering. She had a gloomy expectancy of untoward circumstances, and with it a keen-edged curiosity to watch developments. She had a half-formed conviction that her future conduct, as related to her churchmen, was beyond her control, and would be governed by their attitude toward her. Something was changing in her, forming, waiting for decision, to make it a real and fixed thing. She had told Lassiter that she felt helpless and lost in the fateful tangle of their lives, and now she feared that she was approaching the same chaotic condition of mind in regard to her religion. It appalled her to find that she questioned phases of that religion— Absolute faith had been her serenity. Though leaving her faith unshaken, her serenity had been disturbed, and now it was broken by open war between her and her ministers. That something within her, a whisper, which she had tried in vain to hush, had become a ringing voice, and it called to her to wait. She had transgressed no laws of God. Her churchmen, however invested with the power and the glory of a wonderful creed, however they sat in inexorable judgment of her, must now practice toward her the simple, common, Christian virtue they professed to preach, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Jane Witherstein, waiting in darkness of mind, remained faithful still. But it was darkness that must soon be pierced by light. If her faith were justified, if her churchmen were trying only to intimidate her, the fact would soon be manifest, as would their failure, and then she would redouble her zeal toward them, and toward what had been the best work of her life, work for the welfare and happiness of those among whom she lived, Mormon and Gentile alike. If that secret intangible power closed its toils round her again, if that great invisible hand moved here and there and everywhere, slowly paralyzing her with its mystery and its inconceivable sway over her affairs, then she would know beyond doubt that it was not chance, nor jealousy, nor intimidation, nor ministerial wrath at her revolt, but a cold and calculating policy thought out long before she was born, a dark, immutable will of whose empire she and all that was hers was but an atom. Then might come her ruin." Then might come her fall into black storm. Yet she would rise again, and to the light. God would be merciful to a driven woman who had lost her way. A week passed. Little Fay played and prattled, and pulled at Lassiter's big black guns. The rider came to Witherstein House oftener than ever. Jane saw a change in him, though it did not relate to his kindness and gentleness. He was quieter and more thoughtful. 
While playing with Fay or conversing with Jane, he seemed to be possessed of another self that watched with cool, roving eyes, that listened, listened always, as if the murmuring amber stream brought messages, and the moving leaves whispered something. Lassiter never rode bells into the court any more, nor did he come by the lane or the paths. When he appeared, it was suddenly and noiselessly out of the dark shadow of the grove. "'I left bells out in the sage,' he said, one day at the end of that week. "'I must carry water to him.' "'Why not let him drink at the trough, or here?' asked Jane, quickly. "'I reckon it'd be safer for me to slip through the grove. I've been watched when I rode in from the sage.' "'Watched? By whom?' by a man who thought he was well hid. But my eyes are pretty sharp. And Jane, he went on, almost in a whisper, I reckon it'd be a good idea for us to talk low. You're spot on here by your women. Lassiter, she whispered in turn, that's hard to believe. My women love me. What of that? he asked. Of course they love you. But they're Mormon women." Jane's old rebellious loyalty clashed with her doubt. "'I won't believe it,' she replied stubbornly. "'Well, then, just act natural and talk natural, and pretty soon—give them time to hear us—pretend to go over there to the table, and then quick-like make a move for the door and open it.' "'I will,' said Jane, with heightened color. Lassiter was right. He never made mistakes. He would not have told her unless he positively knew— Yet Jane was so tenacious of faith that she had to see with her own eyes, and so constituted that to employ even such small deceit toward her women made her ashamed and angry for her shame as well as theirs. Then a singular thought confronted her that made her hold up this simple ruse, which hurt her, though it was well justified, against the deceit she had wittingly and eagerly used toward Lassiter. The difference was staggering in its suggestion of that blindness of which he had accused her, fairness and justice and mercy that she had imagined were anchor cables to hold fast her soul to righteousness had not been hers in the strange, biased duty that had so exalted and confounded her. Presently Jane began to act her little part, to laugh and play with Fay, to talk of horses and cattle to Lassiter. Then she made deliberate mention of a book in which she kept records of all pertaining to her stock, and she walked slowly toward the table, and when near the door she suddenly whirled and thrust it open. Her sharp action nearly knocked down a woman who had undoubtedly been listening. "'Hester,' said Jane sternly, "'you may go home, and you need not come back.' Jane shut the door and returned to Lassiter. Standing unsteadily, she put her hand on his arm." She let him see that doubt had gone, and how this stab of disloyalty pained her. "'Spies! My own women! How miserable!' she cried, with flashing, tearful eyes. "'I hate to tell you,' he replied. By that she knew he had long spared her. "'It's begun again, that work in the dark.' "'Nay, Lassiter, it never stopped.' So bitter certainty claimed her at last, and trust fled Witherstein House, and fled forever. The women who owed much to Jane Witherstein changed not in love for her, nor in devotion to their household work, but they poisoned both by a thousand acts of stealth and cunning and duplicity. Jane broke out once, and caught them in strange, stone-faced, unhesitating falsehood. 
Thereafter she broke out no more. She forgave them, because they were driven. Poor, fettered, and sealed Hagars, how she pitied them! What terrible thing bound them and locked their lips, when they showed neither consciousness of guilt toward their benefactress, nor distress at the slow wearing apart of long-established and dear ties? "'The blindness again!' cried Jane Witherstein. "'In my sisters, as in me. Oh, God!' There came a time when no words passed between Jane and her women. Silently they went about their household duties, and secretly they went about the underhand work to which they had been bidden. The gloom of the house, and the gloom of its mistress, which darkened even the bright spirit of little Fay, did not pervade these women. Happiness was not among them, but they were aloof from gloom. They spied and listened, they received and sent secret messengers, and they stole Jane's books and records, and finally the papers that were deeds of her possessions. Through it all they were silent, wrapped in a kind of trance. Then, one by one, without leave or explanation or farewell, they left Witherstein House, and never returned. Coincident with this disappearance, Jane's gardeners and workers in the alfalfa fields and stablemen quit her, not even asking for their wages. Of all her Mormon employees about the great ranch, only Jurd remained. He went on with his duty, but talked no more of the change than if it had never occurred. Jurd said Jane, what stock you can't take care of, turn out in the sage. Let your first thought be for Black Star and night. Keep them in perfect condition, run them every day, and watch them always. Though Jane Witherstein gave them such liberality, she loved her possessions. She loved the rich green stretches of alfalfa, and the farms, and the grove, and the old stone house, and the beautiful, ever-faithful amber spring, and every one of a myriad of horses and colts and burrows and fowls, down to the smallest rabbit that nipped her vegetables. But she loved best her noble Arabian steeds. In common with all riders of the upland sage, Jane cherished two material things, the cold, sweet, brown water that made life possible in the wilderness, and the horses which were a part of that life. When Lassiter asked her what Lassiter would be without his guns, he was assuming that his horse was part of himself. So Jane loved Black Star and Night because it was her nature to love all beautiful creatures, perhaps all living things and then she loved them because she herself was of the sage, and in her had been born and bred the rider's instinct to rely on his four-footed brother. And when Jane gave Jurd the order to keep her favorites trained down to the day, it was a half-conscious admission that presaged a time when she would need her fleet horses. Jane had now, however, no leisure to brood over the coils that were closing round her. Mrs. Larkin grew weaker as the August days began. She required constant care. There was little Fay to look after, and such household work as was imperative. Lassiter put bells in the stable with the other racers, and directed his efforts to a closer attendance upon Jane. She welcomed the change. He was always at hand to help, and it was her fortune to learn that his boast of being awkward around women had its root in humility and was not true. His great brown hands were skilled in a multiplicity of ways which a woman might have envied. He shared Jane's work, and was of especial help to her in nursing Mrs. Larkin. The woman suffered most at night, and this often broke Jane's rest. So it came about that Lassiter would stay by Mrs. Larkin during the day when she needed care, and Jane would make up the sleep she lost in night watches. 
Mrs. Larkin at once took kindly to the gentle Lassiter, and, without ever asking who or what he was, praised him to Jane. "'He's a good man, and loves children,' she said. How sad to hear this truth spoken of a man whom Jane thought lost beyond all redemption. Yet ever and ever Lassiter towered above her, and behind or through his black, sinister figure shone something luminous that strangely affected Jane. Good and evil began to seem incomprehensibly blended in her judgment. It was her belief that evil could not come forth from good. Yet here was a murderer who dwarfed in gentleness, patience, and love any man she had ever known. She had almost lost track of her more outside concerns when early one morning Judkins presented himself before her in the courtyard. Thin, hard, burnt, bearded, with the dust and sage thick on him, with his leather wristband shining from use, and his boots worn through on the stirrup side, he looked the rider of riders. He wore two guns and carried a Winchester. Jane greeted him with surprise and warmth, set meat and bread and drink before him, and called Lassiter out to see him. The men exchanged glances, and the meaning of Lassiter's keen inquiry and Judkins' bold reply, both unspoken, was not lost upon Jane. "'Where's your horse?' asked Lassiter aloud. "'Left him down the slope,' answered Judkins. "'I footed it in a ways and slept last night in the sage. I went to the place you told me you most always slept, but didn't strike you. I moved up some, near the spring, and now I go there nights.' "'Judkins, the white herd?' queried Jane hurriedly. "'Miss Witherstein, I make proud to say I've not lost a steer.' For a good while after that stampede Lassiter milled, we had no trouble. Why, even the sage-dogs left us. But it's begun again, that flashing of lights over ridge-tips, and queer puffin' of smoke, and then at night strange whistles and noises. But the herds acted magnificent. And my boys, say, Miss Witherstein, they're only kids, but I ask no better riders. I got the laugh in the village for taking them out. They're a wild lot. "'and you know boys have more nerve than grown men "'because they don't know what danger is. "'I'm not denying there's danger, but they glory in it, "'and maybe I like it myself. "'Anyway, we'll stick. "'We're going to drive the herd on the far side "'of the first break of Deception Pass. "'There's a great round valley over there, "'and no ridges or piles of rocks to aid these stampeders. "'The rains are due. "'We'll have plenty of water for a while, "'and we can hold that herd from anybody except Oldring.' I come in for supplies. I'll pack a couple of burrows and drive out after dark tonight. Judkins, take what you want from the storeroom. Lassiter will help you. I, I can't thank you enough, but wait. Jane went to the room that had once been her father's, and from a secret chamber in the thick stone wall she took a bag of gold, and, carrying it back to the court, she gave it to the rider. There, Judkins, and understand that I regard it as little for your loyalty. Give what is fair to your boys, and keep the rest. Hide it. Perhaps that would be wisest. Oh, Miss Witherstein, ejaculated the rider. I couldn't earn so much in, in ten years. It's not right. I oughtn't take it. Judkins, you know I'm a rich woman. I tell you, I've few faithful friends. I've fallen upon evil days. God only knows what will become of me and mine. So take the gold." She smiled in understanding of his speechless gratitude, and left him with Lassiter. 
Presently she heard him speaking low at first, then in louder accents, emphasized by the thumping of his rifle on the stones. "'As infernal a job as even you, Lassiter, ever heard of.' "'Why, son,' was Lassiter's reply, "'this breakin' of Miss Witherstein may seem bad to you, but it ain't bad yet. Some of these wall-eyed fellers who look just as if they were walkin' in the shadow of Christ himself, right down the sunny road, now they can think of things and do things that are really hell-bent. Jane covered her ears and ran to her own room, and there, like a caged lioness, she paced to and fro, till the coming of little Fay reversed her dark thoughts. The following day, a warm and muggy one, threatening rain, a while Jane was resting in the court, a horseman clattered through the grove and up to the hitching-rack. He leaped off and approached Jane with the manner of a man determined to execute difficult mission, yet fearful of its reception. In the gaunt, wiry figure and the lean, brown face, Jane recognized one of her Mormon riders, Blake. It was he of whom Judkins had long since spoken. Of all the riders ever in her employ, Blake owed her the most, and as he stepped before her, removing his hat and making manly efforts to subdue his emotion, he showed that he remembered. "'Miss Witherstein, mother's dead,' he said. "'Oh, Blake!' exclaimed Jane, and she could say no more. "'She died free from pain in the end, and she's buried, resting at last, thank God. "'I've come to ride for you again, if you'll have me. "'Don't think I mentioned mother to get your sympathy. "'When she was living and your riders quit, I had to also. "'I was afraid of what might be done, said to her.' "'Miss Witherstein, we can't talk of, of what's going on now. "'Blake, do you know?' "'I know a great deal. "'You understand my lips are shut. "'But without explanation or excuse, I offer my services. "'I'm a Mormon. I hope a good one. "'But there are some things... "'It's no use, Miss Witherstein. "'I can't say any more what I'd like to. "'But will you take me back?' "'Blake, you know what it means?' "'I don't care.' I'm sick of, of, I'll show you a Mormon who'll be true to you. But, Blake, how terribly you might suffer for that. Maybe. Aren't you suffering now? God knows, indeed I am. Miss Witherstein, it's a liberty on my part to speak so, but I know you pretty well, know you'll never give in. I wouldn't, if I were you. And I, I must, something makes me tell you the worst is yet to come. That's all. I absolutely can't say more. Will you take me back, let me ride for you, show everybody what I mean? Blake, it makes me happy to hear you. How my riders hurt me when they quit. Jane felt the hot tears well to her eyes and splashed down upon her hands. I thought so much of them, tried so hard to be good to them, and not one was true. You've made it easy to forgive. Perhaps many of them really feel as you do, but dare not return to me. Still, Blake, I hesitate to take you back. Yet I want you so much. Do it, then. If you're going to make your life a lesson to Mormon women, let me make mine a lesson to the men. Right is right. I believe in you, and here's my life to prove it. You hint it may mean your life, said Jane, breathless and low. We won't speak of that. I want to come back. I want to do what every rider aches in his secret heart to do for you. Miss Witherstein, I hope did not be necessary to tell you that my mother on her deathbed told me to have courage. She knew how the thing galled me, 
She told me to come back. Will you take me? God bless you, Blake. Yes, I'll take you back. And will you, will you accept gold from me? Miss Witherstein. I just gave Judkins a bag of gold. I'll give you one. If you will not take it, you must not come back. You might ride for me a few months, weeks, days, till the storm breaks. Then you'd have nothing, and be in disgrace with your people. We'll forearm you against poverty, and me against endless regret. I'll give you gold which you can hide till some future time. Well, if it pleases you, replied Blake. But you know I never thought of pay. Now, Miss Witherstein, one thing more. I want to see this man Lassiter. Is he here? Yes, but Blake, what? Need you see him? Why? asked Jane, instantly worried. I can speak to him. Tell him about you. That won't do. I want to. I've got to tell him myself. Where is he? Lassiter is with Mrs. Larkin. She is ill. I'll call him, answered Jane, and going to the door, she softly called for the rider. A faint musical jingle preceded his step. Then his tall form crossed the threshold. Lassiter, here's Blake, an old rider of mine. He has come back to me, and he wishes to speak to you. Blake's brown face turned exceedingly pale. Yes, I had to speak to you, he said swiftly. My name's Blake. I'm a Mormon and a rider. Lately I quit Miss Witherstein. I've come to beggar to take me back. Now, I don't know you, but I know what you are. So I've this to say to your face. It would never occur to this woman to imagine, let alone suspect me to be a spy. She couldn't think it might just be a low plot to come here and shoot you in the back. Jane Witherstein hasn't that kind of a mind. Well, I've not come for that. I want to help her to pull a bridle along with Judkins and, and you. The thing is, do you believe me? I reckon I do, replied Lassiter. How this slow, cool speech contrasted with Blake's hot, impulsive words. You might have saved some of your breath. See here, Blake, cinch this in your mind. Lassiter has met some square Mormons, and maybe— Blake, interrupted Jane, nervously anxious to terminate a colloquy that she perceived was an ordeal for him. Go at once and fetch me a report of my horses. Miss Witherstein, you mean the big drove down in the sage-cleared fields? Of course, replied Jane. My horses are all there, except the blooded stock I keep here. Haven't you heard, then? Heard? No. What's happened to them? They're gone, Miss Witherstein. Gone these ten days past. Dorn told me, and I rode down to see for myself. Lassiter, did you know? asked Jane, whirling to him. I reckon so. But what was the use to tell you? It was Lassiter turning away his face, and Blake studying the stone flags at his feet, that brought Jane to the understanding of what she betrayed. She strove desperately, but she could not rise immediately from such a blow. "'My horses! My horses! What's become of them?' Dorn said the riders report another drive by Oldring, and I trailed the horses miles down the slope toward Deception Pass." My red herd's gone. My horse is gone. The white herd will go next. I can stand that. But if I lost Black Star and Night, it would be like parting with my own flesh and blood. Lassiter, Blake, am I in danger of losing my racers? 
a rustler, or, or anybody stealing hosses of yours, would most of all want the blacks,' said Lassiter. His evasive reply was affirmative enough. The other rider nodded gloomy acquiescence. "'Oh, oh!' Jane Witherstein choked with violent utterance. "'Let me take charge of the blacks?' asked Blake. "'One more rider won't be any great help to Judkins, but I might hold Black Star and Knight if you put such store on their value.' value blake i love my racers besides there's another reason why i mustn't lose them you go to the stables go with jurd every day when he runs the horses and don't let them out of your sight if you would please me win my gratitude guard my black racers when blake had mounted and ridden out of the court lassiter regarded jane with the smile that was becoming rarer as the days sped by "'Pears to me, as Blake says, you do put some store on them hosses. "'Now I ain't gainsayin' that the Arabians are the handsomest hosses I ever seen. "'But Bells can beat night, and run neck and neck with Black Star. "'Lassiter, don't tease me now. I'm miserable, sick. "'Bells is fast, but he can't stay with the blacks, and you know it. "'Only Wrangle can do that.' "'I'll bet that big, raw-boned brute can mourn show his heels to your black racers.' Jane, out there in the sage, on a long chase, Wrangle could kill your favorites. No, no, replied Jane impatiently. Lassiter, why do you say that so often? I know you've teased me at times, and I believe it's only kindness. You're always trying to keep my mind off worry. But you mean more by this repeated mention of my racers. I reckon so. Lassiter paused, and for the thousandth time in her presence moved his black sombrero round and round, as if counting the silver pieces on the band. "'Well, Jane, I've sort of read a little that's passing in your mind.' "'You think I might fly from my home, from Cottonwoods, from the Utah border?' "'I reckon. And if you ever do, and get away with the blacks, I wouldn't like to see Wrangle left here on the sage. Wrangle could catch you.' I know Venters had him, but you never can tell. Maybe he hasn't got him now. Besides, things are happening, and something of the same queer nature might have happened to Venters. God knows you're right. Poor Byrne, how long he's gone. In my trouble, I've been forgetting him. But, Lassiter, I've little fear for him. I've heard my rider say he's keen as a wolf. As to your reading my thoughts— well, your suggestion makes an actual thought of what was only one of my dreams. I believe I dreamed of flying from this wild borderland, Lassiter. I've strange dreams. I'm not always practical in thinking of my many duties, as you said once. For instance, if I dared, if I dared, I'd ask you to saddle the blacks and ride away with me, and hide me. Jane! The rider's sunburnt face turned white. A few times Jane had seen Lassiter's cool calm broken, when he had met little Fay, when he had learned how and why he had come to love both child and mistress, when he had stood beside Milly Earn's grave. But one and all they could not be considered in the light of his present agitation. Not only did Lassiter turn white, not only did he grow tense, not only did he lose his coolness, but also he suddenly, violently, hungrily took her into his arms and crushed her to his breast. "'Lassiter!' cried Jane, trembling. It was an action for which she took sole blame. Instantly, as if dazed, weakened, he released her. "'Forgive me,' went on Jane. 
I'm always forgetting your, your feelings. I thought of you as my faithful friend. I'm always making you out more than human. Only, let me say, I meant that about riding away. I'm wretched, sick of this, this, oh, something bitter and black grows on my heart. Jane, the hell of it, he replied with deep intake of breath, is you can't ride away. Maybe realizing it accounts for my grabbing you that way, as much as the crazy boy's rapture your words gave me. I don't understand myself, but the hell of this game is you can't ride away. Lassiter, what on earth do you mean? I'm an absolutely free woman. You ain't absolutely anything of the kind. I reckon I've got to tell you. Tell me all. It's uncertainty that makes me a coward. It's faith and hope, blind love, if you will, that makes me miserable. Every day I awake believing, still believing. The day grows, and with it doubts, fears, and that black bat-hate that bites hotter and hotter into my heart. Then comes night. I pray. I pray for all, and for myself. I sleep, and I awake free once more, trustful, faithful, to believe, to hope. Then, oh my God, I grow and live a thousand years till night again. But if you want to see me a woman, tell me why I can't ride away. Tell me what more I'm to lose. Tell me the worst. Jane, you're watched. There ain't no single move of yours, except when you're hid in your house, that ain't seen by sharp eyes. The cottonwood grove's full of creepin', crawlin' men, like Indians in the grass. When you rode, which wasn't often lately, the sage was full of sneakin' men. At night they crawl under your windows into the court, and I reckon into the house. Jane Witherstein, you know, never locked a door. This here grove's a hummin' beehive of mysterious happenings. Jane, it ain't so much that these souls keep out of my way as me keepin' out of theirs. They're going to try to kill me, that's plain. But maybe I'm as hard to shoot in the back as in the face. So far I've seen fit to watch only. This all means, Jane, that you're a marked woman. You can't get away, not now. Maybe later, when you're broken, you might. But that's sure doubtful. Jane, you're to lose the cattle that's left, your home and ranch, and Amber Spring. You can't even hide a sack of gold, for it couldn't be slipped out of the house day or night and hid or buried, let alone be rid off with. You may lose all. I'm telling you, Jane, hoping to prepare you if the worst does come. I told you once before about that strange power I've got to feel things. Lassiter, what can I do? Nothing, I reckon, except know what's coming and wait and be game. If you'd let me make a call on Tull, and a long-deferred call on... Hush, hush, she whispered. Well, even that wouldn't help you any in the end. What does it mean? Oh, what does it mean? I am my father's daughter, a Mormon, yet I can't see. I've not failed in religion, in duty. For years I've given with a free and full heart. When my father died, I was rich. If I'm still rich, it's because I couldn't find enough ways to become poor. What am I, what are my possessions, to set in motion such intensity of secret oppression? Jane, the mind behind it all, is an empire-builder. But, Lassiter, I would give freely all I own to avert this, this wretched thing. If I gave, that would leave me with faith still. Surely my, my churchmen think of my soul. If I lose my trust in them... Child, be still said Lassiter, with a dark dignity that had in it something of pity. 
You're a woman, fine and big and strong, and your heart matches your size. But in mind you're a child. I'll say a little more, then I'm done. I'll never mention this again. Among many thousands of women, you're one who has bucked against your churchmen. They tried you out, and failed of persuasion, and finally of threats. You meet now the cold steel of a will as far from Christ-like as the universe is wide. You're to be broken. Your body's to be held, given to some man, made, if possible, to bring children into the world. But your soul? What do they care for your soul? End of chapter 12「Chapter thirteen of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter thirteen. Solitude and Storm. In his hidden valley, Venters awakened from sleep and his ears rang with innumerable melodies from full-throated mockingbirds, and his eyes opened wide upon the glorious golden shaft of sunlight shining through the great stone bridge. The circle of cliffs surrounding Surprise Valley lay shrouded in morning mist, a dim blue low down along the terraces, a creamy, moving cloud along the ramparts. The oak forest in the center was a plumed and tufted oval of gold. He saw Bess under the spruces, Upon her complete recovery of strength, she always rose with the dawn. At the moment she was feeding the quail she had tamed, and she had begun to tame the mockingbirds. They fluttered among the branches overhead, and some left off their songs to flit down and shyly hop near the twittering quail. Little gray and white rabbits crouched in the grass, now nibbling, now laying long ears flat and watching the dogs. Venter's swift glance took in the brightening valley, and Bess and her pets, and Ring and Whitey. It swept over all to return again and rest upon the girl. She had changed. To the dark trousers and blouse she had added moccasins of her own make, but she no longer resembled a boy. No eye could have failed to mark the rounded contours of a woman. The change had been to grace and beauty. A glint of warm gold gleamed from her hair, and a tint of red shone in the clear dark brown of cheeks. The haunting sweetness of her lips and eyes, that earlier had been elusive, a promise, had become a living fact. She fitted harmoniously into that wonderful setting. She was like Surprise Valley, wild and beautiful. Venters leaped out of his cave to begin the day. He had postponed his journey to Cottonwoods until after the passing of the summer rains. The rains were due soon. But until their arrival and the necessity for his trip to the village, he sequestered in a far corner of mind all thought of peril, of his past life, and almost that of the present. It was enough to live. He did not want to know what lay hidden in the dim and distant future. Surprise Valley had enchanted him. In this home of the cliff-dwellers there were peace and quiet and solitude, and another thing, wondrous as the golden morning shaft of sunlight, that he dared not ponder over long enough to understand. The solitude he had hated when alone he had now come to love. He was assimilating something from this valley of gleams and shadows. From this strange girl he was assimilating more. The day at hand resembled many days gone before. 
As Venters had no tools with which to build, or to till the terraces, he remained idle. Beyond the cooking of the simple fare there were no tasks. And as there were no tasks, there was no system. He and Bess began one thing to leave it, to begin another, to leave that, and then do nothing but lie under the spruces and watch the great cloud-sails majestically move along the ramparts and dream and dream. The valley was a golden, sunlit world. It was silent. The sighing wind and the twittering quail and the singing birds, even the rare and seldom-occurring hollow crack of a sliding, weathered stone, only thickened and deepened that insulated silence. Venters and Bess had vagrant minds. "'Bess, did I tell you about my horse Wrangle? inquired Venters. "'A hundred times,' she replied. "'Oh, have I? I'd forgotten. I want you to see him. He'll carry us both.' "'I'd like to ride him. Can he run?' "'Run? He's a demon. Swiftest horse on the sage. I hope he'll stay in that canyon.' "'He'll stay.' They left camp to wander along the terraces, into the aspen ravines, under the gleaming walls. Ring and Whitey wandered in the fore, often turning, often trotting back, open-mouthed and solemn-eyed and happy. Venters lifted his gaze to the grand archway over the entrance to the valley, and Bess lifted hers to follow his, and both were silent. Sometimes the bridge held their attention for a long time. Today a soaring eagle attracted them. "'How he sails!' exclaimed Bess. "'I wonder where his mate is.' "'She's at the nest. It's on the bridge in a crack near the top. I see her often. She's almost white.' They wandered on down the terrace into the shady, sun-flecked forest. A brown bird fluttered, crying from a bush. Bess peeped into the leaves. "'Look, a nest and four little birds. They're not afraid of us. See how they open their mouths. They're hungry.' Rabbits rustled the dead brush and pattered away. The forest was full of a drowsy hum of insects. Little darts of purple that were running quail crossed the glades, and a plaintive, sweet peeping came from the coverts. Bess's soft step disturbed a sleeping lizard that scampered away over the leaves. She gave chase and caught it, a slim creature of nameless color but of exquisite beauty. "'Jewel eyes,' she said. "'It's like a rabbit, afraid.' We won't eat you. There, go. Murmuring water drew their steps down into a shallow, shaded ravine where a brown brook brawled softly over mossy stones. Multitudes of strange gray frogs with white spots and black eyes lined the rocky bank and leaped only at close approach. Then Venter's eye descried a very thin, very long green snake coiled round a sapling. They drew closer and closer till they could have touched it, the snake had no fear, and watched them with scintillating eyes. "'It's pretty,' said Bess. "'How tame! I thought snakes always ran.' "'No, even the rabbits didn't run here till the dogs chased them.' On and on they wandered, to the wild jumble of massed and broken fragments of cliff at the west end of the valley. The roar of the disappearing stream dinned in their ears. Into this maze of rocks they threaded a tortuous way, climbing, descending, halting, to gather wild plums and great lavender lilies, and going on at the will of fancy. Idle and keen perceptions guided them equally. "'Oh, let us climb there,' cried Bess, pointing upward to a small space of terrace left green and shady between huge abutments of broken cliff. 
and they climbed to the nook and rested and looked out across the valley to the curling column of blue smoke from their campfire. But the cool shade and the rich grass and the fine view were not what they had climbed for. They could not have told, although whatever had drawn them was well satisfying. Light, sure-footed as a mountain goat, Bess pattered down at Venter's heels, and they went on, calling the dogs, eyes dreamy and wide, listening to the wind and the bees and the crickets and the birds. Part of the time Ring and Whitey led the way, then Venter's, then Bess, and the direction was not an object. They left the sun-streaked shade of the oaks, brushed the long grass of the meadows, entered the green and fragrant swaying willows, to stop, at length, under the huge old cottonwoods where the beavers were busy. Here they rested and watched. A dam of brush and logs and mud and stones backed the stream into a little lake. The round, rough beaver houses projected from the water. Like the rabbits, the beavers had become shy. Gradually, however, as Venters and Bess knelt low, holding the dogs, the beavers emerged to swim with logs and gnaw at cottonwoods, and pat mud walls with their paddle-like tails, and, glossy and shiny in the sun, to go on with their strange, persistent industry. They were the builders. The lake was a mud-hole, and the immediate environment a scarred and dead region, but it was a wonderful home of wonderful animals. "'Look at that one. He paddles in the mud.' said Bess. And there, see him dive, hear them gnawing. I'd think they'd break their teeth. How's it they can stay out of the water and under the water? And she laughed. Then Venters and Bess wandered farther, and, perhaps not all unconsciously this time, wended their slow steps to the cave of the cliff-dwellers where she liked best to go. The tangled thicket and the long slant of dust and little chips of weathered rock and the steep bench of stone and the worn steps all were arduous work for Bess in the climbing. But she gained the shelf, gasping, hot of cheek, glad of eye, with her hand in Venters. Here they rested. The beautiful valley glittered below with its millions of wind-turned leaves bright-faced in the sun, and the mighty bridge towered heavenward, crowned with blue sky. Bess, however, never rested for long. Soon she was exploring, and Venters followed. She dragged forth from corners and shelves a multitude of crudely fashioned and painted pieces of pottery, and he carried them. They peeped down into dark holes of the kivas, and Bess gleefully dropped a stone and waited for the long-coming hollow sound to rise. They peeped into the little globular houses like mud-wasp nests, and wondered if these had been store-places for grain, or baby-cribs, or what and they crawled into the larger houses and laughed when they bumped their heads on the low roofs, and they dug in the dust of the floors, and they brought from dust and darkness armloads of treasure which they carried to the light. Flints and stones and strange curved sticks and pottery they found, and twisted grass rope that crumbled in their hands, and bits of whitish stone which crushed to powder at a touch and seemed to vanish in the air. That white stuff was bone, said Venters, slowly. Bones of a cliff-dweller. No, exclaimed Bess. Here's another piece. Look. <sighs> Dry, powdery smoke. That's bone. Then it was that Venters' primitive, childlike mood, like a savage's, seeing yet unthinking, gave way to the encroachment of civilized thought. The world had not been made for a single day's play, or fancy, or idle watching. The world was old. 
Nowhere could be gotten a better idea of its age than in this gigantic, silent tomb. The grey ashes in Venter's hand had once been bone of a human being like himself. The pale gloom of the cave had shadowed people long ago. He saw that Bess had received the same shock, could not in moments such as this escape her feeling, living, thinking destiny. "'Burn, people have lived here,' she said, with wide, thoughtful eyes. "'Yes,' he replied. "'How long ago?' "'A thousand years and more.' "'What were they?' "'Cliff-dwellers, men who had enemies and made their homes high out of reach. "'They had to fight?' "'Yes.' "'They fought for what?' "'For life, for their homes, food, children, parents, for their women.' "'Has the world changed any in a thousand years?' "'I don't know. Perhaps a little. "'Have men?' "'I hope so. I think so.' "'Things crowd into my mind,' she went on, "'and the wistful light in her eyes told Venters the truth of her thoughts. "'I've ridden the border of Utah. "'I've seen people, know how they live. "'But they must be few of all who are living. "'I had my books and I studied them. "'But all that doesn't help me any more.' I want to go out into the big world and see it. Yet I want to stay here more. What's to become of us? Are we cliff-dwellers? We're alone here. I'm happy when I don't think. These, these bones that fly into dust, they make me sick and a little afraid. Did the people who lived here once have the same feelings as we have? What was the good of their living at all? They're gone. What's the meaning of it all, of us? "'Bess, you ask more than I can tell. It's beyond me. Only there was laughter here once, and now there's silence. There was life, and now there's death. Men cut these little steps, made these arrowheads and mealing stones, plaited the ropes we found, and left their bones to crumble in our fingers. As far as time is concerned, it might all have been yesterday. We're here today. Maybe we're higher in the scale of human beings, in intelligence.' "'But who knows? We can't be any higher in the things for which life is lived at all. "'What are they? "'Why, I suppose relationship, friendship, love. "'Love. "'Yes, love of man for woman, love of woman for man. "'That's the nature, the meaning, the best of life itself.' "'She said no more. "'Wistfulness of glance deepened into sadness. "'Come, let us go.' said Venters. Action brightened her. Beside him, holding his hand, she slipped down the shelf, ran down the long, steep slant of sliding stones, out of the cloud of dust, and likewise out of the pale gloom. "'We beat the slide,' she cried. The miniature avalanche cracked and roared, and rattled itself into an inert mass at the base of the incline. Yellow dust, like the gloom of the cave, but not so changeless, drifted away on the wind. The roar clapped in echo from the cliff, returned, went back, and came again to die in the hollowness. Down on the sunny terrace there was a different atmosphere. Ring and Whitey leaped around Bess. Once more she was smiling, gay and thoughtless, with the dream mood in the shadow of her eyes. "'Bess, I haven't seen that since last summer. Look,' said Venters, pointing to the scalloped edge of rolling purple clouds that peeped over the western wall." We're in for a storm. Oh, I hope not. I'm afraid of storms. Are you? 
Why? Have you ever been down in one of those walled-up pockets in a bad storm? No, now I think of it, and I haven't. Well, it's terrible. Every summer I get scared to death and hide somewhere in the dark. Storms up on the sage are bad, but nothing to what they are down here in the canyons. And in this little valley, why, echoes can rap back and forth so quick they'll split our ears. We're perfectly safe here, Bess. I know, but that hasn't anything to do with it. The truth is, I'm afraid of lightning and thunder, and thunderclaps hurt my head. If we have a bad storm, will you stay close to me? Yes. When they got back to camp, the afternoon was closing, and it was exceedingly sultry. Not a breath of air stirred the aspen leaves, and when these did not quiver, the air was indeed still. The dark purple clouds moved almost imperceptibly out of the west. "'What have we for supper?' asked Bess. "'Rabbit.' "'Burn, can't you think of another new way to cook rabbit?' went on Bess with earnestness. "'What do you think I am, a magician?' retorted Venters. "'I wouldn't dare tell you. But, Burn, do you want me to turn into a rabbit?' There was a dark blue, merry flashing of eyes and a parting of lips. Then she laughed. In that moment she was naive and wholesome. "'Rabbit seems to agree with you,' replied Venters. "'You are well and strong, and growing very pretty.' Anything in the nature of compliment he had never before said to her, and just now he responded to a sudden curiosity to see its effect. Bess stared as if she had not heard aright, slowly blushed, and completely lost her poise in happy confusion. "'I'd better go right away,' he continued, "'and fetch supplies from Cottonwoods.' A startlingly swift change in the nature of her agitation made him reproach himself for his abruptness. "'No, no, don't go,' she said. "'I didn't mean that about the rabbit. I, I was only trying to be funny. Don't leave me all alone.' "'Bess, I must go sometime.' "'Wait, then. Wait till after the storms.' The purple cloud bank darkened the lower edge of the setting sun, crept up and up, obscuring its fiery red heart, and finally passed over the last ruddy crescent of its upper rim. The intense dead silence awakened to a long, low, rumbling roll of thunder. "'Oh!' cried Bess, nervously. "'We've had big black clouds before this without rain,' said Venters. "'But there's no doubt about that thunder. The storms are coming.' I'm glad. Every rider on the sage will hear that thunder with glad ears. Venters and Bess finished their simple meal and the few tasks around the camp, then faced the open terrace, the valley, and the west to watch and await the approaching storm. It required keen vision to see any movement whatever in the purple clouds. By infinitesimal degrees the dark cloud line merged upward into the golden-red haze of the afterglow of sunset. A shadow lengthened from under the western wall across the valley. As straight and rigid as steel rose the delicate, spear-pointed silver spruces. The aspen leaves, by nature pendant and quivering, hung limp and heavy. No slender blade of grass moved. A gentle splashing of water came from the ravine. Then again, from out of the west, sounded the low, dull, and rumbling roll of thunder. A wave, a ripple of light, a trembling and turning of the aspen leaves, like the approach of a breeze on the water, crossed the valley from the west, 
and the lull and the deadly stillness and the sultry air passed away on a cool wind. The night bird of the canyon, with clear and melancholy notes, announced the twilight, and from all along the cliffs rose the faint murmur and moan and mourn of the wind singing in the caves. The bank of clouds now swept hugely out of the western sky. Its front was purple and black, with gray between, a bulging, mushrooming, vast thing instinct with storm. It had a dark, angry, threatening aspect. As if all the power of the winds were pushing and piling behind, it rolled ponderously across the sky. A red flare burned out instantaneously, flashed from the west to east, and died. Then from the deepest black of the purple cloud burst a boom. It was like the bowling of a huge boulder along the crags and ramparts, and seemed to roll on and fall into the valley, to bound and bang and boom from cliff to cliff. "'Oh!' cried Bess, with her hands over her ears. "'What did I tell you?' "'Why, Bess, be reasonable.' said Venters. "'I'm a coward.' "'Not quite that, I hope. It's strange you're afraid. I love a storm.' "'I tell you, a storm down in these canyons is an awful thing. I know Aldring hated storms. His men were afraid of them. There was one who went deaf in a bad storm and never could hear again.' "'Maybe I've lots to learn, Bess. I'll lose my guess if this storm isn't bad enough. We're going to have heavy wind first then lightning and thunder, then the rain. Let's stay out as long as we can. The tips of the cottonwoods and the oaks waved to the east, and the rings of aspens along the terraces twinkled their myriad of bright faces in fleet and glancing gleam. A low roar rose from the leaves of the forest, and the spruces swished in the rising wind. It came in gusts, with light breezes between. As it increased in strength, the lull shortened in length till there was a strong and steady blow all the time, and violent puffs at intervals, and sudden whirling currents. The clouds spread over the valley, rolling swiftly and low, and twilight faded into a sweeping darkness. Then the singing of the wind in the caves drowned the swift roar of rustling leaves. Then the song swelled to a mourning, moaning wail. Then, with the gathering power of the wind, the wail changed to a shriek. Steadily the wind strengthened, and constantly the strange sound changed. The last bit of blue sky yielded to the own sweep of clouds. Like angry surf, the pale gleams of gray, amid the purple of that scudding front, swept beyond the eastern rampart of the valley. The purple deepened to black. Broad sheets of lightning flared over the western wall. There were not yet any ropes or zigzag streaks darting down through the gathering darkness. The storm center was still beyond Surprise Valley. "'Listen, listen,' cried Bess, with her lips close to Venter's ear. "'You'll hear Oldring's knell.' "'What's that?' "'Oldring's knell. When the wind blows a gale in the caves, it makes what the rustlers call Oldring's knell. They believe it bodes his death. I think he believes so, too. It's not like any sound on earth. It's beginning. Listen.' The gale swooped down with a hollow, unearthly howl. It yelled and pealed and shrilled and shrieked. It was made up of a thousand piercing cries. It was a rising and a moving sound. Beginning at the western break of the valley, it rushed along each gigantic cliff, whistling into the caves and cracks, to mount in power, to bellow a blast through the great stone bridge. 
Gone as into an engulfing roar of surging waters, it seemed to shoot back and begin all over again. It was only wind, thought Venters. Here sped and shrieked the sculptor that carved out the wonderful caves in the cliffs. It was only a gale, but as Venters listened, as his ears became accustomed to the fury and strife, out of it all, or through it, or above it, pealed low and perfectly clear and persistently uniform, a strange sound that had no counterpart in all the sounds of the elements. It was not of earth or of life. It was the grief and agony of the gale, a knell of all upon which it blew. Black night enfolded the valley. Venters could not see his companion, and knew of her presence only through the tightening hold of her hand on his arm. He felt the dogs huddle closer to him. Suddenly the dense black vault overhead split asunder to a blue-white, dazzling streak of lightning. The whole valley lay vividly clear and luminously bright in his sight. Upreared, vast and magnificent, the stone bridge glimmered like some grand god of storm in the lightning's fire. Then all flashed black again, blacker than pitch, a thick, impenetrable, coal blackness. And there came a ripping, crashing report. Instantly an echo resounded with clapping crash. The initial report was nothing to the echo. It was a terrible, living, reverberating, detonating crash. The wall threw the sound across, and could have made no greater roar if it had slipped in avalanche. From cliff to cliff the echo went in crashing retort, and banged in lessening power, and boomed in thinner volume, and clapped weaker and weaker, till a final clap could not reach across the waiting cliff. In the pitchy darkness Venters led Bess, and, groping his way, by feel of hand found the entrance to her cave, and lifted her up. On the instant a blinding flash of lightning illumined the cave and all about him. He saw Bess's face, white now, with dark, frightened eyes. He saw the dogs leap up, and he followed suit. The golden glare vanished. All was black. And then came the splitting crack and the infernal din of echoes. Beth shrank closer to him and closer, found his hands, and pressed them tightly over her ears, and dropped her face upon his shoulder, and hid her eyes. Then the storm burst with a succession of ropes and streaks and shafts of lightning, playing continuously, filling the valley with a broken radiance, and the cracking shots followed each other swiftly till the echoes blended in one fearful, deafening crash. Venters looked out upon the beautiful valley beautiful now as never before, mystic in its transparent, luminous gloom, weird in the quivering golden haze of lightning. The dark spruces were tipped with glimmering lights, the aspens bent low in the winds, as waves in a tempest at sea, the forest of oaks tossed wildly and shone with gleams of fire. Across the valley the huge cavern of the cliff-dwellers yawned in the glare, every little black window as clear as at noonday but the night and the storm added to their tragedy. Flung arching to the black clouds, the great stone bridge seemed to bear the brunt of the storm. It caught the full fury of the rushing wind. It lifted its noble crown to meet the lightnings. Venters thought of the eagles and their lofty nest in a niche under the arch. A driving pall of rain, black as the clouds, came sweeping on to obscure the bridge and the gleaming walls and the shining valley. The lightning played incessantly, streaking down through opaque darkness of rain. The roar of the wind, with its strange knell and the re-crashing echoes, mingled with the roar of the flooding rain, 
and all seemingly were deadened and drowned in a world of sound. In the dimming pale light, Venters looked down upon the girl. She had sunk into his arms, upon his breast, burying her face. She clung to him. He felt the softness of her, and the warmth, and the quick heave of her breast. He saw the dark, slender, graceful outline of her form. A woman lay in his arms, and he held her closer. He, who had been alone in the sad, silent watches of the night, was not now, and never must be again, alone. He, who had yearned for the touch of a hand, felt the long tremble and the heartbeat of a woman. By what strange chance had she come to love him? By what change, by what marvel had she grown into a treasure? No more did he listen to the rush and roar of the thunderstorm. For with the touch of clinging hands and the throbbing bosom, he grew conscious of an inward storm, the tingling of new chords of thought, strange music of unheard joyous bells, sad dreams dawning to wakeful delight, dissolving doubt, resurging hope, force, fire, and freedom, unutterable sweetness of desire, a storm in his breast, a storm of real love. End of chapter 13「Chapter Fourteen of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter Fourteen West Wind. When the storm abated, Venters sought his own cave, and late in the night, as his blood cooled and the stir and throb and thrill subsided, he fell asleep. With the breaking of dawn his eyes unclosed. The valley lay drenched and bathed, a burnished oval of glittering green. The rain-washed walls glistened in the morning light. Waterfalls of many forms poured over the rims. One, a broad lacy sheet, thin as smoke, slid over the western notch and struck a ledge in its downward fall, to bound into a broader leap, to burst far below into white and gold and rosy mist. Venters prepared for the day, knowing himself a different man. "'It's a glorious morning,' said Bess, in greeting. "'Yes, after the storm, the west wind,' he replied. "'Last night was I very much of a baby?' she asked, watching him. "'Pretty much.' "'Oh, I couldn't help it.' "'I'm glad you were afraid.' "'Why?' she asked, in slow surprise." "'I'll tell you some day,' he answered soberly. Then around the campfire and through the morning meal he was silent. Afterward he strolled thoughtfully off alone along the terrace. He climbed a great yellow rock, raising its crest among the spruces, and there he sat down to face the valley in the west. "'I love her.' Aloud he spoke, unburdened his heart, confessed his secret." For an instant the golden valley swam before his eyes, and the walls waved, and all about him whirled with tumult within. "'I love her. I understand now.' Reviving memory of Jane Witherstein and thought of the complications of the present amazed him with proof of how far he had drifted from his old life. He discovered that he hated to take up the broken threads, to delve into dark problems and difficulties." In this beautiful valley he had been living a beautiful dream. Tranquility had come to him, 
and the joy of solitude, and interest in all the wild creatures and crannies of this incomparable valley, and love. Under the shadow of the great stone bridge, God had revealed himself to Venters. "'The world seems very far away,' he muttered. "'But it's there, and I'm not yet done with it. Perhaps I never shall be. Only how glorious it would be to live here always, and never think again.' Whereupon the resurging reality of the present, as if in irony of his wish, steeped him instantly in contending thought. Out of it all he presently evolved these things. He must go to Cottonwoods. He must bring supplies back to Surprise Valley. He must cultivate the soil and raise corn and stock. And most imperative of all, he must decide the future of the girl who loved him and whom he loved. The first of these things required tremendous effort. The last one, concerning Bess, seemed simply and naturally easy of accomplishment. He would marry her. Suddenly, as from roots of poisonous fire, flamed up the forgotten truth concerning her. It seemed to wither and shrivel up all his joy on its hot, tearing way to his heart. She had been Oldring's masked rider. To Venter's question, What were you to Oldring? She had answered with scarlet shame and drooping head. "'What do I care who she is, or what she was?' he cried passionately. And he knew it was not his old self speaking. It was this softer, gentler man who had awakened to new thoughts in the quiet valley. Tenderness, masterful in him now, matched the absence of joy and blunted the knife edge of entering jealousy. Strong and passionate effort of will, surprising to him, held back the poison from piercing his soul. "'Wait! Wait!' he cried, as if calling. His hand pressed his breast, and he might have called to the pang there. Wait! It's all so strange, so wonderful. Anything can happen. Who am I to judge her? I'll glory in my love for her. But I can't tell it, can't give up to it. Certainly he could not then decide her future. Marrying her was impossible in Surprise Valley, and in any village south of Stirling. Even without the mask she had once worn, she would easily have been recognized as Oldring's rider. No man who had ever seen her would forget her, regardless of his ignorance as to her sex. Then more poignant than all other argument was the fact that he did not want to take her away from Surprise Valley. He resisted all thought of that. He had brought her to the most beautiful and wildest place of the uplands. He had saved her, nursed her back to strength, watched her bloom as one of the valley lilies. He knew her life there to be pure and sweet. She belonged to him, and he loved her. Still, these were not all the reasons why he did not want to take her away. Where could they go? He feared the rustlers. He feared the riders. He feared the Mormons. And if he should ever succeed in getting Bess safely away from these immediate perils, he feared the sharp eyes of women and their tongues, the big outside world with its problems of existence. He must wait to decide her future, which, after all, was deciding his own. But between her future and his, something hung impending. Like balancing rock, which waited darkly over the steep gorge, ready to close forever the outlet to deception pass, that nameless thing, as certain yet intangible as fate, must fall and close forever all doubts and fears of the future. "'I've dreamed,' muttered Venters as he rose. Well, why not? To dream is happiness. But let me just once see this clearly, wholly. Then I can go on dreaming till the thing falls. 
I've got to tell Jane Witherstein. I've dangerous trips to take. I've work here to make comfort for this girl. She's mine. I'll fight to keep her safe from that old life. I've already seen her forget it. I love her. And if a beast ever rises in me, I'll burn my hand off before I lay it on her with shameful intent. And by God, sooner or later, I'll kill the man who hid her and kept her in Deception Pass. As he spoke, the west wind softly blew in his face. It seemed to soothe his passion. That west wind was fresh, cool, fragrant, and it carried a sweet, strange burden of far-off things, tidings of life in other climes, of sunshine asleep on other walls, of other places where reigned peace. It carried, too, sad truth of human hearts and mystery, of promise and hope unquenchable. Surprise Valley was only a little niche in the wide world whence blew that burdened wind. Bess was only one of millions at the mercy of unknown motive in nature and life. Content had come to Venters in the valley. Happiness had breathed in the slow, warm air. Love, as bright as light, had hovered over the walls and descended to him. And now on the west wind came a whisper of the eternal triumph of faith over doubt. "'How much better I am for what has come to me!' he exclaimed. "'I'll let the future take care of itself. Whatever falls, I'll be ready.' Venters retraced his steps along the terrace back to camp, and found Bess in the old familiar seat, waiting and watching for his return. "'I went off by myself to think a little,' he explained. "'You never looked that way before. What, "'What is it? Won't you tell me?' "'Well, Bess, the fact is I've been dreaming a lot. "'This valley makes a fellow dream. "'So I forced myself to think. "'We can't live this way much longer. "'Soon I'll simply have to go to Cottonwoods. "'We need a whole pack train of supplies. "'I can get... "'Can you go safely?' she interrupted. "'Why, I'm sure of it. "'I'll ride through the pass at night.' I haven't any fear that Wrangle isn't where I left him. And once on him, best just wait till you see that horse. Oh, I want to see him, to ride him. But, but, Burn, this is what troubles me, she said. Will, will you come back? Give me four days. If I'm not back in four days, you'll know I'm dead. For that only shall keep me. Oh. Bess, I'll come back. There's danger, I wouldn't lie to you but I can take care of myself. Burn, I'm sure, oh, I'm sure of it. All my life I've watched hunted men. I can tell what's in them. And I believe you can ride and shoot and see with any rider of the sage. It's not, not that I fear. Well, what is it then? Why, why, why should you come back at all? I couldn't leave you here alone. You might change your mind when you get to the village among old friends. I won't change my mind. As for old friends. He uttered a short, expressive laugh. Then there, there must be a, a woman. Dark red mantled the clear tan of temple and cheek and neck. Her eyes were eyes of shame, upheld a long moment by intense, straining search for the verification of her fear. Suddenly they drooped. Her head fell to her knees. Her hands flew to her hot cheeks. Bess, look here said Venters, with a sharpness due to the violence with which he checked his quick, surging emotion. As if compelled against her will, answering to an irresistible voice, Bess raised her head, looked at him with sad, dark eyes, and tried to whisper with tremulous lips. 
"'There's no woman,' went on Venters, deliberately holding her glance with his. "'Nothing on earth, barring the chances of life, can keep me away.' Her face flashed and flushed with the glow of a leaping joy, but like the vanishing of a gleam it disappeared to leave her as he had never beheld her. "'I am nothing. I am lost. I am nameless.' "'Do you want me to come back?' he asked, with sudden stern coldness. "'Maybe you want to go back to Oldring.' That brought her erect, trembling and ashy pale, with dark, proud eyes and mute lips refuting his insinuation. "'Bess, I beg your pardon. I shouldn't have said that. But you angered me. I intend to work, to make a home for you here, to be a, a brother to you as long as ever you need me. And you must forget what you are.' were, I mean, and be happy. When you remember that old life, you're bitter, and it hurts me. I was happy. I shall be very happy. Oh, you're so good that, that it kills me. If I think, I can't believe it. I grow sick with wondering why. I'm only a, let me say it, only a lost, nameless girl of the rustlers. Aldring's girl, they called me. That you should save me, be so good and kind, want to make me happy, why, it's beyond belief. No wonder I'm wretched at the thought of your leaving me. But I'll be wretched and bitter no more, I promise you. If only I could repay you even a little. You've repaid me a hundredfold. Will you believe me? Believe you? I couldn't do else. Then listen. Saving you, I saved myself. Living here in this valley with you, I've found myself. I've learned to think while I was dreaming. I never troubled myself about God. But God, or some wonderful spirit, has whispered to me here. I absolutely deny the truth of what you say about yourself. I can't explain it. There are things too deep to tell. Whatever the terrible wrongs you've suffered, God holds you blameless. I see that, feel that in you every moment you are near me. I've a mother and a sister way back in Illinois. If I could, I'd take you to them tomorrow. If it were true... "'Oh, I might, I might lift my head,' she cried. "'Lift it, then, you child, for I swear it's true.' She did lift her head, with a singular wild grace always a part of her actions, with that old unconscious intimation of innocence which always tortured Venters, but now with something more, a spirit rising from the depths that linked itself to his brave words. "'I've been thinking, too,' she cried, with quivering smile and swelling breast, I've discovered myself, too. I'm young, I'm alive, I'm so full. Oh, I'm a woman. <laughs> Bess, I believe I can claim credit of that last discovery before you, Venter said, and laughed. Oh, there's more. There's something I must tell you. Tell it, then. When will you go to Cottonwoods? As soon as the storms are past, or the worst of them. I'll tell you before you go. I can't now. I don't know how I shall then, but it must be told. I'd never let you leave me without knowing, for in spite of what you say, there's a chance you mightn't come back. Day after day the west wind blew across the valley. Day after day the clouds clustered gray and purple and black. The cliffs sang and the caves rang with Aldring's knell, and the lightning flashed, the thunder rolled, the echoes crashed and crashed, and the rains flooded the valley. Wild flowers sprang up everywhere, swaying with the lengthening grass on the terraces, smiling wanly from shady nooks, 
peeping wondrously from year-dry crevices of the walls. The valley bloomed into a paradise. Every single moment, from the breaking of the gold bar through the bridge at dawn, on to the reddening of rays over the western wall, was one of colorful change. The valley swam in thick, transparent haze, golden at dawn, warm and white at noon, purple in the twilight. At the end of every storm a rainbow curved down into the leaf-bright forest to shine and fade and leave lingeringly some faint essence of its rosy iris in the air. Venters walked with Bess, once more in a dream, and watched the lights change on the walls and faced the wind from out of the west. Always it brought softly to him strange, sweet tidings of far-off things. It blew from a place that was old and whispered of youth. It blew down the grooves of time. It brought a story of the passing hours. It breathed low of fighting men and praying women. It sang clearly the song of love. That ever was the burden of its tidings. Youth in the shady woods, waders through the wet meadows, boy and girl at the hedgerow stile, bathers in the booming surf, sweet idle hours on grassy, windy hills, long strolls down moonlit lanes, everywhere in far-off lands, fingers locked and bursting hearts and longing lips, from all the world tidings of unquenchable love. Often in these hours of dreams he watched the girl and asked himself of what was she dreaming, for the changing light of the valley reflected its gleam and its color and its meaning in the changing light of her eyes. He saw in them infinitely more than he saw in his dreams. He saw thought and soul and nature, strong vision of life. All tidings the west wind blew from distance and age he found deep in those dark blue depths, and found them mysteries solved. Under their wistful shadow he softened, and in the softening felt himself grow a sadder, a wiser, and a better man. While the west wind blew its tidings, filling his heart full, teaching him a man's part. The days passed, the purple clouds changed to white, and the storms were over for that summer. "'I must go now,' he said. "'When?' she asked. "'At once, to-night. "'I'm glad the time has come. It dragged at me. "'Go, for you'll come back the sooner.' Late in the afternoon, as the ruddy sun split its last flame in the ragged notch of the western wall, Bess walked with Venters along the eastern terrace, up the long, weathered slope, under the great stone bridge. They entered the narrow gorge to climb around the fence long before built there by Venters. Farther than this she had never been. Twilight had already fallen in the gorge. It brightened to waning shadow in the wider ascent. He showed her balancing rock, of which he had often told her, and explained its sinister leaning over the outlet. Shuddering, she looked down the long, pale incline with its closed-in, toppling walls. "'What an awful trail! Did you carry me up here?' "'I did, surely,' replied he. "'It frightens me, somehow. Yet I never was afraid of trails. I'd ride anywhere a horse could go, and climb where he couldn't. But there's something fearful here. I feel as, as if the place was watching me. "'Look at this rock. It's balanced here.' "'Balanced perfectly. "'You know I told you the cliff-dwellers cut the rock, and why. "'But they're gone, and the rock waits. "'Can't you see, feel how it waits here? "'I moved it once, and I'll never dare again. "'A strong heave would start it. "'Then it would fall and bang and smash that crag, 
and jar the walls, and close forever the outlet to deception pass. Ah, when you come back I'll steal up here and push and push with all my might to roll the rock and close forever the outlet to the pass. She said it lightly, but in the undercurrent of her voice was a heavier note, a ring deeper than any ever given mere play of words. Bess, you can't dare me. Wait till I come back with supplies. Then roll the stone. I was in fun. Her voice now throbbed low. Always you must be free to go when you will. Go now. This place presses on me, stifles me. I'm going, but you had something to tell me? Yes. Will you come back? I'll come if I live. But, but you mightn't come? That's possible, of course. It'll take a good deal to kill me. A man couldn't have a faster horse or keener dog. And, Bess, I've guns, and I'll use them if I'm pushed. But don't worry. I've faith in you. I'll not worry until after four days. Only, because you mightn't come, I must tell you. She lost her voice. Her pale face, her great, glowing, earnest eyes, seemed to stand alone out of the gloom of the gorge. The dog whined, breaking the silence. I must tell you, because you mightn't come back, she whispered. You must know what, what I think of your goodness, of you. Always I've been tongue-tied. I seemed not to be grateful. It was deep in my heart. Even now, if I were other than I am, I couldn't tell you. But I'm nothing, only a rustler's girl, nameless, infamous. You saved me, and I'm, I'm yours to do with as you like. With all my heart and soul, I love you. End of chapter 14